Welcome to Alec Across the States. I'm your host, Dan Reynolds. Today we're going to be discussing online betting and its expansion. What's been going on? How have official leagues responded to it? And what are states doing? To help us discuss this, we have Jess Field. She serves as the Senior Director of Government Relations for the American Gaming Association, also known as AGA. You might hear it a couple times during this podcast. Interestingly enough, Jess was recently named to the Emerging Leaders of Gaming 40 Under 40 Class of 2019-2020. thought our listeners might find that very interesting. Jess, thank you so much for calling in. Thanks for having me. And also joined is Alex's own Ronnie Lampart. He is the senior director of both the Criminal Justice Task Force and also the Civil Justice Task Force. Ronnie, thank you so much for setting up this conversation and calling in. Thank you, Dan. Thanks for having us. Of course. So just to uh, start us off, set the stage a little bit, I'm going to ask try to try to ask a little bit of a basic question. So right now, betting on things like the NFL draft is showing demand, right? The market is definitely in demand right now, and I think we're seeing it. So just to let our listeners know, what are some takeaways that they should understand from this increase in market demand? That's a great question. As, as everyone knows at this point, we don't have sporting events to, for wagering right now. But since PASA was struck down almost exactly two years ago this week, there's been um, you know a, a large rise in sports betting around the country. But with, with no sports on offer, leagues have needed to shift and or excuse me, the operators have needed to shift and, and look for new uh, new options and new markets for, the, for their customers. So wagering on the NFL draft was, was clearly a, a significant event. In fact, uh, a number of operators compared it to wagering on playoff games. So not quite the action you see on the Super Bowl, but quite close. Beyond that, sportsbooks have been offering things like table tennis, different soccer leagues in Europe that are still operating and esports, and And these are events that regulators can evaluate for gaming and wagering in- integrity and feel confident that when, when they're offered that, that it's fair to consumers and, and a, a wager that consumers can feel confident about. So sports betting really is a, a huge form of entertainment for sports fans. And it's a way for fans to engage with the events they love. Uh, and you see this as, as in, a, in a normal time when sports books are busy on the weekends or during playoffs or during special tournaments with people enjoying the games, but also wagering. So consumers still want a way to engage with sports and, and have that outlet for entertainment right now. So I think it's not surprising that the draft was one of the first big marquee sporting events, so to speak, that we've had in the last few weeks. So we're going to keep seeing that. Consumers love having ways to engage with their activities. And we'll see new innovations uh, to continue that as we wait for traditional sports to come back. Jeff, yeah, all great points. And I'll just add that in addition to operators saying this is better, this turnout for betting was better than a typical Monday night or Thursday night football game. It was more like, as you said, a playoff game. They also talked about how a lot of the consumers weren't afraid to bet heavily on some long shots. This shows a very strong market by showing that people were willing to not just make bets, but make extraordinarily risky bets on the NFL draft. And I must say, personally, as a sports fan myself, I, I watched the draft from start to finish. You know, it was one of the few sporting events that's been on over the last few months. And a lot of people felt the same way. A lot, the ratings were very high. And to no one's surprise, the sports betting handle was also very high. 
And, and another point, if we don't know if sports are going to come back with fans in stadiums right away. So this continues to give fans that connection to their events when they can't be there live. Absolutely. So Jessica, curious, the sports, you talk about sports betting and its expansion and how there are going to be opportunities to bet on sports going forward, even as fans are not in the stands. Recently, we saw Colorado and Virginia enact sports betting and Colorado actually rolled it out. Maryland is voting on it in November and Louisiana is currently considering it in its legislature. And I'm just curious, will more states look into legalizing sports betting to recoup the revenue loss as a result of COVID-19? Because we've seen several states legalize it over the last few years, but do you think this will accelerate that process? Right. That's a great question. And I think we absolutely can expect states to look at sports betting as part of their rebuilding process as they look to fund COVID relief efforts, fill budget gaps and things like that. Um, Gaming has always been a a huge tax revenue driver for states and will continue to be that once once it's up and running again. Um, And and sports betting should be part of that. And we've seen in in the states that have legalized sports betting already, a lot of that discussion came around creating a new form of tax revenue in addition to creating a new gaming vertical for, for customers that they enjoy. So we can expect that. Gaming is a driver and it, it's going to be continue to be a driver in these communities, both direct employment of gaming staff, indirect employment of vendors, tax revenue, partners for their communities in the state. So states will absolutely consider this. Um, a number of states have considered been considering sports betting over the past few years, couldn't get past a couple last minute hurdles in some instances, something near places like Ohio, Kentucky, and Missouri. Um, and I think they're going to go back to that again as they look for ways to shore up revenue in their states and see what resources exist. But, you know, we want to be mindful of what legal sports betting can and cannot do. Sports betting, when compared to other gaming verticals, such as table games or stocks, is a much lower margin business. So, so we have to be mindful that while it's going to be part of the consumer experience and part of improving um, revenue for states, it's not necessarily, you know, that has to be balanced with a, a reasonable tax rate and other things that uh, are necessary to ensure that sports betting is productive and successful. I'm glad you brought up a reasonable tax rate because several states are considering ways to make up for lost revenue. And one temptation certainly is to pass sports betting, but that, but accompany that and stack on top of it a very high tax rate on the handle. And it's my understanding that these tax rates are extraordinarily problematic for a number of reasons. One of them is that if the operators, the licensed operators, are offering less competitive rates than the black market, people are still going to be driven to the black market and still going to bet illegally as they would in states that have not yet legalized sports betting. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. Absolutely. It's a really important question for any states that are considering legalizing sports betting is how do you balance this, uh, you know, the tax rate to bring in enough tax revenue to the state to make it valuable and important, but also to make it successful for the operators as well so they can offer this product. Unlike foster table games, which, which have a pretty steady and reliable uh, level of revenue coming into the operators after winnings are paid out and after all the other overhead is paid. Uh, 
sports betting is incredibly volatile. Uh, you know, underdogs win sometimes and, and have, the books have a really bad day. But even beyond that, operating sports books is a, a highly resource intensive part of the business for gaming companies. So, you know, generally speaking, for every $100 wagered, um, only about $5 of that is goes back to the book at any point. There's, there's about a 5% revenue to sports books and their entire handle. So when you see numbers like, you know, $100 billion in handle, that's the amount wagered. 95% of that goes back to the players and the sports books don't keep that. They're only working with 5% of it. And from that, they also have to pay taxes. They have to pay their employees. They have to pay their licensing fees. They have to pay for other overhead. Marketing is a huge expense. And that's how they get the customers in the door in the first place. And, you know, you mentioned it. This is not an expense that offshore and illegal and black market sports books have. Um, those books operate outside the law. They do not have costs of licensing, costs of taxes. They don't pay. They don't even pay things like, you know, employment taxes or things like that. So in order to be competitive and pull consumers out of and off of these unregulated sports gaming sites where there's no consumer protection, there's no responsible gaming protection, um, we need we need to be as level a playing field as possible. You know, we understand that there is going to be taxes and we, we want to be a community partner in that way. But at the same time, a really burdensome tax rate really limits our ability to be successful. Well, that, that certainly all makes sense. I do want to shift gears a little bit. Uh, we mentioned Virginia earlier in that they recently enacted sports betting, and it's one of the three states that does require the use of official league data. The other two states are Tennessee and Illinois. So what is official league data, and how does it operate? Uh, That's a great question, and one that has been key to the debate in a number of states. I'll I'll add that in addition to Virginia, Tennessee, and Illinois, we also see it uh, in Michigan as well, which is looking to launch later this year. They just legalized sports betting late last year. An official league data mandate or official league data is, as we refer to it, is a statutory requirement that sports betting operators in the state use data provided by the sports leagues to settle bets. That official league data can be I'm sorry to interject. You said to settle bets. Does that include all bets or does that include just tier two bets or is it also tier one bets? Great. That's a great distinction. Um, What we've seen in the four states that have required it is for what's called tier two wagers. So those are in-play wagers, things that bets that are made after the start of the sporting event. Um, And then those states that from there tweak it a little bit. Some require it for wagers that don't depend on the outcome of the event, but some actually do encompass the outcome of the event for wagers placed after play began. And and just so our listeners are are tracking, because this is how I'm hearing it, so please jump in if I'm uh, understanding it incorrectly. But a tier one bet would be one that is placed before the start of the game and is maybe directly tied toward the outcome of it. Is that correct? Yep. Or how how would you differentiate a tier one to tier two? Yeah, you got it. A tier one bet is your traditional sports bet. So it's when you know. Um, so I'm originally from Philadelphia. I'm an Eagles fan. Um, so it's, it's when I decide that, you know, this year's the year they're going to, they're going to do it again and win the Super Bowl. If I were to place a wager today for the Eagles to win the Super Bowl at the end of the season, or even to win their home opener, that would be considered tier one bet. Got it. And that's more, that's a bet that's more readily obvious and readily apparent. 
than a tier two bet, as Jessica was describing earlier. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. If someone wins or doesn't win, that's a little more straightforward, right? Then, uh, you know, a little more of an intricacy thing. How many fumbles there were? How many? Uh, let's say baseball is that an error or not an error? You know, things like that. So yes and no, because um, even those things like like whether that was a fumble or whether that was an error, those are things that are going to become part of the public record of the sporting event. Mm. Those are things that get reported in the news or yeah. get put out in the box scores or things like that. So while not readily apparent, maybe while we're sitting there watching, just because certain amount of information has to be processed, um, whether it's by the league or by the you know news reporters that are there to watch the game and report on it, it that's a, that information does become part of the, the record of the game eventually. I do want to discuss a hypothetical under a, on a tier two bet, these prop bets. Um, one is in a couple of examples. So let's say someone bets that a player will hit a home run longer than 400 feet during a baseball game or whether a golfer's drive will exceed 300 yards. And then let's say further that the MLB or, and the PGA in their official data say that the home run was 401 feet and that and the PGA says then the drive was 301 yards. But let's say it's a state that doesn't require official data, league data, official league data, and that their operator says that the home run was in fact 399 feet, even though StatCast said it was 401 feet, and that the drive was actually 299 and a half yards. So that's also a losing bet. So you're having conflicting numbers from the operator and the league. So the better loses despite the league's indicating that the bet, those bets should be a winner. This, this seems to be a risk that could harm the consumer. I'm, I'm just interested in hearing the response to that. Uh, yeah, it's a great question. And I think it, it drills down to the intricacies of these, these wagers and how sports folks are innovating with new products and wagering markets to keep players engaged. But fundamentally, at the end of the day, if there's a if a consumer is not in agreement with how a bet is settled, so how the sports book grades that wager, whether it's a win or a loss, their recourse is with their gaming regulator. They take that to the, every state has a gaming regulatory body that licenses, regulates, monitors, and oversees these sports books for integrity and, and consumer protection. And they're going to take that to the, the gaming regulator to oversee this, the the question or the issue, you know, the, the, the sports leagues don't answer for that. They don't have a say in how these, these wagers are graded. Ultimately at the end of the day, it's, it's the source. The only thing they're providing is data. And if the leagues are providing data, that's valuable and, and useful and something that we do believe that operators should have the ability to enter into commercial agreements with them about if they want to use official league data on these things. But, other sources of data are valuable, are are something that they can use and that regulators have to sign off on as well. Regulators require that sports books get their data from reputable sources, whether it's the league or, or another outlet or another form of, of acquiring that data. So really they're requiring official league data is not the way to protect the consumer. The way to protect the consumer is to have good regulations in place from your gaming agency that requires sports books to be responsive and to be, you know, to work with their consumers to provide a quality product that they, that they can feel confident about, not something that, you know, simply getting a, a sign off says it's good enough. Well, there can 
certainly be more back and forth on this topic, but in the interest of time, I do want to move along to discuss unregulated gaming devices. I think this is a perfect segue because you talked about regulators and how to hold operators accountable. And we hear stories about these unregulated gaming devices, and you particularly hear about these machines in Virginia, Pennsylvania, and Ohio. And because these are unregulated, they really don't operate with any sort of consumer protections in place. So I'm curious, where else do they exist and how is AGA addressing this issue? Yeah, thanks. Um, It's an an important issue. Um, Just to to back up a bit, gaming, and I've referenced gaming regulators along the way and licensing and things like that. Gaming is a highly regulated industry. Um, You know, when, when casinos open up or when they employ people, every employee from the president of the company down to the person who is, you know, working the floor and, and is the blackjack dealer or sauce attendant is licensed and investigated and has to stay in good standing with the gaming board. And on part of that, in addition to that, not only are our people, um, you know, really responsible and part of this oversight process, but so are our products. Um, gaming machines in our properties undergo rigorous testing by certified test labs or state labs that specialize in understanding how to ensure the game's run appropriately and run fairly for consumers. And then they are consistently retested and monitored to ensure that they are continued to be uh, safe and, and fun for customers, really. In contrast, um, you, these unregulated gaming machines, also sometimes called um, gray market machines or illegal gaming machines, frankly, these, these crop up in other places. Um, these are machines that are skirting the laws. They claim to be either games of skill or simple amusement machines. Uh, but really, they function like like slot machines in a casino. Um, they're they're based they're found in bars, taverns, convenience stores, even in standalone mini casinos, basically in the communities that are are flying under the radar without any sort of oversight. And the concern about these games is that they purport to be lawful, but lack any of these protections or assurances that guide the legal gaming industry. They're not tested. They're not regulated. Um, they're not being operated by people who know how to ensure the games are operating appropriately or ensure that people are really, you know, having responsible gameplay. So take take the casinos. We we have staff there that are dedicated to ensuring that pe- people who are on self-exclusion lists are not allowed to play, that they monitor the gameplay to ensure customers are having a good time and not displaying any problematic gaming behavior. But these machines just exist and and out in, in, you know, frequently trafficked areas like these convenience stores, in other words, truck stops and rest stops, um, where there's no one and there Jeff, to ensure that for our listeners, Well, thank you. For our listeners, I just wanted you to address this. A self-exclusion list is a mechanism by which someone can actually place themselves on a list in order, and bar themselves from entering a casino because they have a gambling problem. And that's something that you say does not exist, does not exist with these unregulated gaming devices that are scattered throughout the country. Is that correct? Right. Those self-exclusion lists are generally administered by your state, uh, by, by the state. And that's something that allows a person to, sit, to, to recognize that they've, they've got a, a problem. And um, exactly that. They, they aren't allowed to enter or, or participate in gaming in any gaming properties, but those don't, those don't cover these sorts of unregulated machines. 
All right. Well, we'll get to our final topic now. So the, everyone kind of wondering what the, how is the economy going to reopen? And I wanted to ask a question specific to the gaming industry. We, we saw the Nevada last month, the Nevada Gaming Control Board issued a memo that outlined procedures for casinos reopening. So what precautions are the, is the in, gaming industry taking as they consider how to reopen? Great. Uh, yeah, it's, it's the question for everybody these days, right? Um, how how can we start getting things opened up again in a way that is safe, but also is enjoyable for consumers? So you mentioned Nevada; they released their control or they released their memo uh, with guidance on this, and they've really been dil- working diligently, uh, as have all the regulators across the country, to keep licensees. Uh, the gaming properties updated on the plans and requirements. And and those plans were approved in Nevada last week. And I know there's similar plans underway in in most other states. And those plans are coming about with collaboration between the gaming regulators and their licensed gaming properties, but also with health and regulatory authorities as well. Um, You know, in, in the big properties that have other amenities besides gaming, such as pools, spas, hotels, restaurants, um, those they, they already work with their health and health and safety agencies to oversee those anyway. So that's going to continue to be part of the dialogue and discussion. We've seen a number of properties and operators who've released their own, in, their own plans publicly, such as uh, the Wynn, the Venetian, and MGM just released theirs this week. Um, these complement the plans from the board and goes into the details that will be specifically implemented in their properties. And it's, you know, it's great because we really want to demonstrate to to the community and to our customers that how seriously we're taking this situation. So we'll continue to work with our regulators, gaming, health, and otherwise to learn more, understand what this process is going to look like for everyone. Uh, AGA is tracking the the reopenings on our website. And right now, as of today, uh, we have, and understand there's out of 989 gaming properties across the country, 20 have reopened in some limited capacity at this point. But it's going to be a process. There's no one-size-fits-all approach. Uh, it's going to look every a little different in every state and every property, even based on the size of the property, the type of consumer they, they usually cater to. But we want to uphold fundamentally at the end of the day the health standards that are so important while also continuing to provide a really valuable and enjoyable experience because I think people are really eager to get back to some things that feel normal. I just want to jump in and say absolutely. I think everyone's excited for Las Vegas and casinos across the country to open again in a safe manner for sure and have certain protections in place and just provide some sense of normalcy. Absolutely. So that does bring us to the end of our podcast segment today. It's been an awesome conversation. Before we close out, I do want to leave us with one final note We are Alec across the states here. Most of our listeners are either um, really interested uh, state policy wonks, state legislators themselves, or even local officials. So Jess, while you have them here, what would be your message? What would be your end-all, be-all, takeaway message for state legislators either considering some of these provisions to pass sports betting? Um, Maybe they've just passed it and they need to think about things as well. What's your final say? You know, Sports betting has really, I think, 
grown across this country in state legislatures at an unprecedented rate. Uh, Twenty Over 20 states uh, have legalized sports betting in two years since the federal ban was struck down. So I want state, you know, policymakers as they think about this to understand that the gaming operators that want to offer sports betting, we strive to really be strong community members and, and invest in our communities and bringing sports betting in is going to be part of that. It's going to be part of growing our, you know, growing a new level of gaming fans, a new type of sports fan. And we hope to be a good partner on that. And we'll continue to work with our state lawmakers to, to implement policies that make sense for every state's a little different. Every gaming property is a little different, but we really want to work with everyone to reach a solution in each state that considers it to bring this, this fun gaming vertical to sports fans and, and burgeoning sports fans alike. Well, thank you for listening to another awesome edition of Alec Across the States. I've been your host, Dan Reynolds, sitting down with Jess Feel, who is the Senior Director of Government Relations for the American Gaming Association. Once again, Jess, thank you so much for joining our podcast to give our listeners all of your great insight. Thank you guys for having me. And once again, joining the Alec podcast, we have Ronald Lampard, the Alec Senior Director of both the Criminal Justice and Civil Justice Task Forces. Ronald, thank you so much for organizing this conversation and calling in. Well, thank you, Dan, and thank you, Jess, for joining. And if you're interested in having your idea featured on Alec Across the States, do not hesitate to email us at acrossthestates at alec.org. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Across the States, the leading state-focused policy podcast presented by the American Legislative Exchange Council, the premier free market organization of and for legislators. To learn more about our work or to make a tax-deductible donation, visit alec.org. Tell us what you think on Facebook and Twitter at Alec States. The views and opinions expressed on Across the States are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the American Legislative Exchange Council. 